You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now, please, to the ninth chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. And when you found your place there, we're beginning reading in verse 1, and we will go through the end of verse 12. For I have taken all this to my heart and explained it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything. Nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would teach us to number our days through this word, through this passage. Teach us what it means to present to you a heart of wisdom and help us to live in light of the fact that we will all die and to live life well for your glory with all the might that you have given to us. We pray that you would help us to rightly understand what Solomon is saying in this passage and to not think that this is something that just ought to be a motivational speech, but rather that this is something that your word says about enjoying the good gifts that you have given to us. Make us mindful of these things and open our hearts to these truths, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today, beginning of verse 7 through verse 10, we're going to be talking about enjoying life. Now already, from the very first sentence of this sermon, you say, that sounds like a Joel Osteen sermon. Did you rip that off from him at some point in the last week? No, this is not a Joel Osteen sermon. You can tell that because I asked you to turn to a passage of Scripture which we just publicly read. That's your first indication that this is not a Joel Osteen sermon. But there is something here in the text that unfortunately people like Joel Osteen want to rip off and make their own. And it's completely illegitimate for them to do so. We're talking about enjoying life, and it does seem quite contradictory to what we talked about last week. Do you remember what we talked about last week? We're all going to die. Every one of us is going to die. 
Now, it almost seems like we are going from one end of the pendulum to another, right? The depressing meditation upon our own mortality, one Sunday, and then the very next Sunday, hey, live life to its fullest. Everything that you have, do with all your might. Do with all of your energy and ability. Death and then living life. Are those two things really all that distance, separate? They seem contradictory? They shouldn't. In fact, I think that the one, verses 7 to 10, about living life and enjoying life, I believe that that is actually the application and the conclusion of what Solomon talked about last week. We do this in light of our death. It is, I said in the beginning of last week, it is when we live life in light of our death that we truly live. Right? It's not that we're seeking a party and a party only, but it is that we, we enjoy the good things that God has given to us, always remembering that we will give an account to the one who has given us all of these good things. And so there's nothing unbiblical or wrong about enjoying life, even though sometimes as Christians we tend to fall into that trap of thinking that there is something unbiblical with anything that is pleasurable or enjoyable or fun to do. And uh, we want to get away from that. This is verses 7 to 9. This is the fifth of five what are called carpe diem passages. A carpe diem is the Latin phrase. For those of you who don't know, it means seize the day. It means to grab a hold of something, to take, take the opportunity that's in front of you. Carpe diem, you seize the day because that day might pass and you may lose that opportunity and so take advantage of it while it is there. And so this is kind of, kind of included in the list of five carpe diem passages. Sometimes these are referred to as pleasure passages because in these carpe diem passages, these five seize the day passages, in those Solomon commends pleasure over and over again. And we're going to talk about what kind of pleasure it is that he is commending and how that is to be understood. But understand that sometimes these are called the pleasure passages. And I would say that there are five. There are a couple of guys that I read who include one more passage in chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. Look over there, if you would. Chapter 11, verse 7 is sometimes included as a carpe diem passage. Verse 7, the light is pleasant and it's good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Some people include that as a pleasure passage or carpe diem passage. Well, it does mention rejoicing there, but not, not like the other pleasure passages or the other carpe diem passages. So I'm just going to stick with five. And though chapter 11 kind of mentions rejoicing, it is really more pessimistic than optimistic. I think the Solomon there is describing something different than this idea of seizing the day and living with all your might. This fifth of the five Carpe Diem passages is the most intense, it is the most detailed, it is the most specific, it is the most forceful of all of them. It is as if Solomon is increasing in intensity with each one of these that he, is, that he has given to us. Now it kind of seems you talk about enjoying life and passages about enjoying life and the fact that there are five of them in Ecclesiastes, that seems kind of out of place in a book that is known for its primary phrase, which is, all is vanity. Chasing after the wind. Everything under the sun. 38 times the word vanity is used in this short book of Ecclesiastes. 38 times in 12 chapters. It has translated futility, meaningless, pointless, empty, vain, futile. That's how it's used. And then the word under the sun, which is uniquely Solomon's perspective, looking at life from down here under the sun. That's used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Of all the books in the Bible that you would expect to find passages dealing with enjoying life and loving life and living it to its fullness, would you expect to find it in a book that uses the word vanity 38 times and under the sun 29 times? Would you expect it here? And yet you can relate to this, can't you? Do we not understand that at sometimes life seems both so incredibly futile and yet so incredibly fulfilling? At the same time, life can be disgusting 
and delightful. Sometimes in the very same moment. Life can be incredibly pointless and yet profound. It's sweet and sour. It's all together. And so Ecclesiastes being honest about how it is that we live life. Solomon is able to talk about vanity and vainness and emptiness. At the same time, he talks about being fulfilled and enjoying life and delighting in pleasures and those things. I have all of those five passages in my Bible underlined in red because I think that this is one of the main themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. Is it depressing and discouraging? Yes. Do we sometimes want to walk away from here and, and go cut our wrists? Yes. Do we want to go walk away from here and drink Drano some Sunday afternoons? Yes. We all want to do that. But in the midst of all of that discouragement and depression, there is this, this real nugget of enjoying life. And, and though they sometimes don't seem to go together, they actually do. But the pleasure and enjoyment that Solomon is describing here is very theocentric. Keep that in mind. It's God-centered. In fact, here's one of the lessons that we learned from the book of Ecclesiastes. When Solomon is looking at life and there's no God in the picture, he uses words like empty, futility, under the sun, meaningless, main. But when Solomon looks at life and God is all over it, guess what he's talking about? Enjoying life, living life to the fullness, enjoying the delights and the gifts that God has given to us, even though we live that life under the sun. I want you to see how God-centered all five of these Carpe Diem passages are. And this will, I want you to see God's fingerprints on all of this. So turn back to chapter 2. And we're not, I'm not going to give you an, an exposition of each of these because we've already studied each one of these passages. I want you to read them back to back, end to end. I want you to see God's fingerprints all over these passages and how Solomon describes this because this sets the context for us of what type of enjoyment and pleasure Solomon is, is talking about. Chapter 2, verse 24. This is the first one. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Verse 25. For who can tell, uh, sorry, who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to the person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. Look over chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Chapter 4, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. These things are God's gift to us. Chapter 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure... For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun. God's footprints are all over the Carpe Diem passages. So those passages where Solomon is talking about enjoying life and enjoying the delights and the pleasures of life, they are seen as God's good gift to us in the midst of a, of a toilsome and vexing and futile and vain existence that really means nothing apart from him. So I, I said something this last week. In light of death, life is either incredibly meaningful or incredibly meaningless. It's one of the two. It depends on your perspective. If God is in the picture, life is incredibly profound and meaningful. If God is not in that equation, life is incredibly meaningless. And death is the thing that determines whether it, death is the, the same for both perspectives. But if God is in it, it is meaningful. If God is not, it's meaningless. And that's what we're learning in the book of Ecclesiastes. So this is a God-centered enjoyment. It's not, the, 
it's not, it's not a selfish pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself. It is a God-centered, theocentric gratitude to God for His gifts in this world. As simple and, and everyday occurrences as they might be, it is a God-centered gratitude for all that He has given. Not a hedonistic, self-centered pursuit of pleasure. Uh, Solomon talks about pleasure in a negative way in Ecclesiastes. He says some negative things about pleasure earlier. When he says negative things about pleasure and enjoyment and those things, he is describing pleasure as pursued as an end in itself. In chapter 2, he describes all of that as emptiness and futility. Do you remember what he said? I built houses and gardens and parks and I had concubines and wine and women and song and entertainment and food and everything you could possibly imagine. And all the wealth of all the kings, it was all mine. And I pursued pleasure and I tested everything with pleasure, he said, with, uh, with my mind guiding me wisely in it. And what does he come to? The conclusion, it's all emptiness, it's meaningless. Why? Because pleasure enjoyed, apart from the giver of that gift, is, is meaningless. It's empty pleasure. It's a man-centered pursuit. But life enjoyed as given by the hand of God with all of our might, for His glory, is a life lived well. It's a life enjoyed. So, we come to verses 7 to 10, and all of that was introduction. we got a lot of, a lot of ground to cover, so let's cover it. Chapter 9, verse 7 through 10, and here's going to be our outline for this morning. You're going to see Solomon describe what we should enjoy under really three categories or three headings, and here they are. We can enjoy first in verses 7 through 8. Solomon says we should enjoy our wine. Don't get upset with me. Just give me a second to flesh that out a little bit. He says in verse 9 that we should enjoy our wife. And he says in verse 10 that we should enjoy our work. These are the elements under those three headings. So let's begin in verse 7 and 8. Solomon says we can enjoy our wine. Now why do I choose that language? For three reasons. Number one, because it is the very language of the text itself. Look at verse 7. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Second, it is a very graphic illustration, a very graphic picture of what Solomon is getting at, that we ought to enjoy the blessings of God. And that idea of jo- enjoy the wine with a cheerful heart is something profoundly meaningful, especially in an agrarian context like what Solomon is describing here. And we'll get to that in just a second. And the third reason I use this word is because it starts with a W, and I had wife and work, and I needed something to fill that in. So Solomon provided it for me, so we're going to use the word wine. Now, if any of you think that what I'm going to do here is to promote some sort of a, a debauched uh, indulgence in alcohol or an overindulgence of that, that is not what this is about at all. This is a category under which a lot of the things listed in this passage fit. All right? So, enjoy your wine. Now, look at verse 7. Beginning of verse 7, Solomon says, Go then. And that sort of stands at the beginning of the verse because it is a command. It's intended to snap us to attention, to catch our attention, and to motivate us to do something. And so he says, Go then. And really, it is a command to get up and do something about this. Look, in light of verse 6, which says, we are all going to perish. All of our love, our hate, and our zeal will perish with us. We will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. In light of your impending death, you have two responses. You can, you can do Eeyore and say, oh well, why bother? I'm going to die anyway. I'm not going to build a new shed. Why bother? I'm going to die. I'm not going to provide this. Why bother? I'm going to die. You can do the Eeyore route. Or you can do like Solomon and say, look, live life because you're going to die. So this is how you should live life. These blessings which are yours today will soon be gone, sooner than you think. So enjoy them while you have them. Those, those are really your two responses. He wants to motivate us to do something, and that is, in verse 7, to eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Look at verse 8, let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. 
And all of those things, whether it is the bread or the wine or the clothes or the oil, all of them kind of fall under this enjoyment of the simple blessings that God has given to us. Now in Isaiah, not Isaiah, Solomon, well, Isaiah's time as well, but in Solomon's day, bread and wine were the staples of life. Except in the most extreme deprivation, every Jew would enjoy bread and wine virtually daily. And wine in the nation of Israel and wine in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's blessing. In an agrarian society, when there was an abundant harvest, they had abundant grapes, and you did something with grapes, you turned them into drink that you could use. You could use it to purify water. You could use it at a time of merriment and celebration. And the Jews did this. Wine was associated with a merry heart and a happy disposition, with making a man glad. It was something that the Jews drank regularly and often and almost every day. An abundant harvest meant an abundance of wine, which was something to be celebrated, and they would enjoy it. And a deprived harvest or a slim harvest meant very little wine and something that they couldn't enjoy on a daily basis. So the abundance of that provision is symbolized by the wine that you would have. You had a lot of wine, it meant God was pouring out His blessings upon you because you had a lot of the very staples of life. And that was bread and wine. And wine is connected with celebrations and festivities like in... Uh, John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee when Jesus turned water into wine, better wine than they had had at the beginning of that feast. And that was a symbol of God's blessing, was something that the Lord did. And it's not something that was shunned in those days. Now, does this mean that Solomon is, is promoting some sort of drunkenness or dissipation? No, and neither am I. I would never suggest... Look, I would say this, drunkenness and dissipation, debauchery in that sense, is condemned universally and unequivocally in Scripture. There are some people who should never have a cup of wine. There are some people who can enjoy a glass of wine, and it's not sin for them. In this context, it was something that they enjoyed. It was a symbol of the blessing of God. And in no way ever does Scripture commend debauchery or drunkenness. It is universally condemned, and it ought to be avoided at all costs as sinful, and something that we never engage in that. But that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about enjoying these simple blessings, bread and wine, the staples of life. Simple things. And notice how Solomon describes this in terms of the attitude in verse 7. We are to do this with a cheerful heart. We are to eat our bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. You can eat and bread, eat bread and drink wine without being cheerful or happy. Right? And there's nothing in eating bread or drinking wine that necessarily makes you happy. You can do that with a frown on your face. You can, you can pout. You can sit and sulk and eat bread and drink your, drink your beverage. You can do that. Solomon is talking about an intentional attitude of gratitude toward God as the giver of these gifts. And so we are to do it, verse 7, with happiness in our hearts, with cheerfulness in our hearts. The end of verse 7 says, God has already approved your works. This is, a, this is the reason for Solomon telling us to go do this. And we're going to return to this in just a second. I want you to notice the structure. Verse 7 talks about eating bread and drinking wine, sort of the top of the verse. Then he has this reason, for God has already approved your works. Verse 8 gives us two more commands. Uh, don't let your clothes be white. Yeah, let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your ha head. So that forms kind of an inclusio. This, the purpose clause, the reason for it is stated in the middle. There are two commands that precede it and two commands that follow it up. So we'll return to the reason clause here in just a second. Beginning in verse 9, or sorry, verse 8, Solomon says, let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now what does that describe? What does it mean to have white clothes? Well, would you rather stand outside in a hot day like today wearing uh, black clothing like some of you fools are wearing, or would you rather stand outside on a day like today wearing a nice white t-shirt? 
White is the color of preference when you're standing out in a hot, arid climate. And so it was in those days. It was a special clothing. It was something that was cool. It was something comfortable, something enjoyable that they would put on. And white clothes were usually reserved for special occasions. White clothes symbolized sometimes purity, sometimes festivity, sometimes a celebration. And so when you put on the white clothes, you were putting on the tux of the day. You were dressing up for a special occasion, some special event, a wedding or a feast or a festival or some sort of a sacrifice or offering, something where you would sort of put on your finest and your nicest. And the oil is very a, a similar figure, a similar a metaphor. Let not oil be lacking on your head. You know what happens to your skin in a hot, arid, dry climate? It starts to crack and it starts to get dry. They would put oil on themselves and that oil would moisten the skin. It would sort of undo the effects of the sun. But oil back then was expensive, particularly perfumed oil, which is what this is describing because Solomon is describing a celebration or an era of festivity. It's the white clothes and it is perfumed oil. Now in our day, you can go out and buy cheap cologne for you go to Walmart the week after Christmas, you can get a five gallon bucket for five bucks. It'll last you all week long or all, all year long, not all week. Not all week, unless you're one of my sons and you think that's a substitute for a shower. It'll last you all week. There, I did it again. All year long. And it's cheap. But in that day, having perfumed oil was something very expensive. It was something you reserved for a special occasion. Because you would anoint yourself with that. It smelled nice. It covered up the odor. And there were plenty of odors in hot, dry climates. There's plenty of odors. And that would cover that up. So Solomon is describing here a festive a celebratory, a unique, a special occasion. You have the white clothing? Dress up once in a while. Put on some cologne. Make yourself look nice. Make yourself smell nice. Enjoy these fine, these fine gifts that God has given to you. And, and notice that he is not advocating any type of extravagance. He, he's, not, he's not promising or he's not promoting some, some adventure that you seek in the far-flung reaches of the world. I'm not saying you have to go on a cruise. You have to go overseas. You have to invest heavily in it. Bread wine, nice clothing, and perfumed oil is something that nearly every Jew would have had in their home. He is not advocating that we find something we do not have and take delight in that. He is saying we ought to take delight in the things that we have. None of these are expensive. These are things that you have every day. These are simple pleasures, simple enjoyments, the staples of life, the simple things of life. Everybody had this. He's not saying you have to have a lot of money to do this. He's just saying the things that God has given to you, which nearly everybody would have, everybody here has these things. You have food in your pantry, water running, you have nice clothes, you're wearing them, and you dressed up and you smell good. I mean, not that I've smelled everybody, but you know what I mean. So everybody has these things at their disposal. These are not things that require a lot of money to enjoy. And what is Solomon saying? Enjoy them. Put them on. Now, what does he mean when he says, for God has already approved your works? This is key because this is the purpose of the reason why he's telling us to do this. God has already approved your works. There are three reason or purpose phrases in the passage. I want you to notice them before I tell you what this one means. The first is that here at the end of verse 7, God has already approved your works. At the end of verse uh, 9, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And at the end of verse 10, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. So there are Three separate categories of things he is telling us to do and to enjoy. And with each one, he gives something of a different reason behind it. The first one, for God has already approved your works. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that before we go out and enjoy, no matter how lavish we are, no matter how profane we might be, no matter how wicked we might be in the enjoyment or how we pursue pleasure, that God has approved of everything that we might do in our pursuit of pleasure, no matter what it is? Is that what Solomon is saying? Some people have suggested that that was cynical Solomon. 
Just saying, hey, whatever it is that you do, whatever pleasure you pursue, whatever it is, hey, God's fine with it. He's not going to judge. You don't have to worry about God judging you. I'm not going to judge you. But that's not what Solomon is saying. Some have suggested that this is Solomon's hat tip toward justification by faith or imputed righteousness. And, and if there's a quizzical look on your face, it's because you're doubting that the same way that I'm doubting that. But here's what they would say. They would say that God has approved our works because God has approved of us. Those of us who have imputed righteousness, we have God's favor. We don't have to worry about losing God's favor by enjoying the good gifts. And so this is Solomon. This is the closest thing that Solomon would get to the notion of imputed righteousness, that he has approved our works ahead of time. And so we can enjoy these things. I don't think that that's what Solomon is describing. I think that the best way to understand this is to say that Solomon is here saying that our works, the ones he's talking about, is our eating of bread and our drinking of wine and our our putting on of the nice clothes and our dressing ourselves up and enjoying the festivities and the celebrations. When you enjoy these good gifts, God is not opposed to that. You have to remember that. Sometimes we, sometimes we are tempted to think, and there are whole segments of Christianity that think this way, that if something is fun, it cannot be God's will for me. If something is enjoyable, I must askew it. I have some sort of aesthetic view of pleasures in this life. And if, if it's good and enjoyable and pleasant, I, I can't have it. Why? Because it's good, pleasant, and enjoyable. And God would never want that for me. But that's not what Solomon is. He, what Solomon is saying is, these things, when we enjoy them, they have God's approval. The enjoyment, God has given us these things to enjoy. That's what 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 says. God has richly supplied us with all things to enjoy. Psalm 16, 11, that one we read at the beginning of our passage says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever. Do you know what God has planned for us in eternity? It is a never-ending joy and delight. One pleasure, one enjoyment, one delight after another forever. Does that sound like a God who is opposed to us enjoying the things of life? It's not. God delights in these things, and He has approved of them, and so we can enjoy them. The second thing that we can enjoy is our wife, verse 9. Now, for those of you who don't have a wife, or for you women, hold on a second. I'm not suggesting you go out and get a wife. I am suggesting that you understand the principle behind verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life, and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. So we can enjoy wine as a symbol of God's abundant blessing to us, the gifts, simple gifts that he has given to us, and we can enjoy our woman. The NASB translates it woman, which is a very literal, um, literal translation. ESV, the other English translations, translate it as your wife or a wife whom God has given to you, whom you love. Um, in Hebrew, the word that is used for woman can be translated wife because it's, it's one word that could be translated either way. And so some people suggest that Solomon is here advocating some sort of a just, hey, whatever woman you got, just enjoy her for all the days of your life. Right? Whoever you love, whoever your woman is now, whoever your female du jour is. I mean, keep in mind, this is a man with a thousand women at his disposal. So whoever the female of du jour is, enjoy her and live with her and love her and, and just enjoy life with her. And love the one you're with. But that's not what Solomon is describing, just loving the one you're with. I think he, in context, and there's a, there's a reason for understanding this in, in the language here, he is describing a wife, not just a woman. He is describing a wife whom God has given to you. Now, remember, keep in mind, this comes from a man with a thousand women at his disposal. And notice that he is not advocating that anybody follow his example. Neither is he advocating that anybody make as much of a hash of marriage as he has. He is talking in, about and advocating God's design for marriage. A man and a woman for life. That's what he's talking about. The individual, one woman, one wife, whom you love, whom God has given to you, enjoy life with her. 
One man, one woman, one covenant for one lifetime. That is God's original plan for marriage. That is God's original design. That's what Solomon is advocating. Not any woman, not every woman, not a thousand women. And if that is what he is describing here, this is the closest thing that we get in the book of Ecclesiastes to an admission by Solomon that he had messed the whole thing up. The man had made an utter hash out of marriage. He had destroyed it. And those women had led his heart astray. This is as close as we get to a confession. I messed it up. You, man, enjoy the woman whom God has given to you. Now, what if you're a woman? And enjoy your husband. Some commentators suggest here that what Solomon has in mind is the intimate physical pleasures of marriage and that alone. Though I think it includes that, if that's all you think that Solomon is describing and enjoying a woman or the spouse whom God has given to you, and I think you're missing the broader picture here. He's describing friendship and companionship and camaraderie and a woman being a helpmate and a husband being there to protect and provide for his wife and all of those things that go with marriage. It's more than just intimacy that he is describing there. Though it includes that, but it's far more than that, far broader than that. So the, the principle here for married and for unmarried is to enjoy the companions that God has given to you. Companionship, this is the, a higher principle or a principle that we might pull out of here. Companionship and friendship, though, whether friends and families and coworkers, those are things that are themselves God's blessing to us. So to the married, we would say that if you are married, you ought to enjoy the companionship, the fellowship, and the friendship that marriage provides to you. Cultivate it aggressively pursue it, honor it, keep it holy, love it, make that woman, that man, your friend, your, your fellowship partner, and all of that in so many of life's endeavors. And do everything you can to cultivate that blessing so that it is a rich blessing to you. And to the unmarried, we would say that by the providence of God, for whatever reason, it is for your good, it can be for no other reason, but for, I should say it's for your good, it, can be, it cannot be for your harm. For whatever reason, by the providence of God, He has put you in that place and you are single today. And I understand that. And here is how you would apply this in your situation. You would say that there are companions and friends whom God has given to me, and I can delight in and enjoy those relationships to the glory of God as a reminder of His goodness to me. And I can pursue those friendships and relationships and delight in them. And God approves of that. That is one of His rich blessings to you. Solomon gives us the reason at the end of verse 9. We do this. Because this is our reward. Remember, he used the term reward up in chapter 5. He has used the word reward in other passages where he just talks about God giving us these gifts as our reward to us under the sun. The idea of companionship and fellowship and enjoyment that God has given to us and the people that we meet and the friendships that we have, all of these things is God's reward to us. It's a gift. You, you work hard and you enjoy the friends and the people that you have, the spouse that you have, and it is a brief reprieve from the futility and the emptiness of this life when we enjoy that fellowship. So not only our wine, but our wife. And then third, our work. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I love this verse. Uh, Charles Spurgeon preached two full sermons on this verse. And uh, I could have just gotten up here and quoted the good stuff that Spurgeon gave you, but then it wouldn't have been my own. And you would have felt like I was stealing Joel Osteen's sermon, but in fact I would have been stealing Charles Spurgeon's sermon. Maybe Spurgeon stole it from Osteen. Maybe that's how it worked. It is loaded with theology and practical advice. And, and Spurgeon does, I would just commend you that you read his sermons on this passage. Now, I can't say both of them because Spurgeon was weird in that sometimes he really hits the nail on the head, sometimes he doesn't. 
There was one of his sermons that he preached, which was really good. And I don't remember which one it was, but read that one because he, he does a good job of really fleshing out all of the applications of this and what this means. It's a loaded verse. I want to back into it just for a second. We'll start at the bottom and we'll work our way to the top. Notice the mention of Sheol. That's the reason. He is saying to us we ought to enjoy and live life. He's giving to us the reason because you're going to die. That's what Sheol is a reference to. I'm going to talk again about what Sheol means here in just a second, but now we'll move up to the top of this. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, typically we think that what Solomon is describing here is our labor, our work, our job. Whatever your nine to five drudge is that God has given to you to do, do that with all your might. Spend yourself in doing that. But you'll notice how much broader the, the phrasing is for whatever your hand finds to do. It doesn't mean whatever job God has given to you, but whatever task it is that you're, you put your hand to, do it with all your might. Now, this applies, of course, to our job and to our work. Um, in America, and we've talked about this before in Ecclesiastes, in America, we have a view of work that is entirely unbiblical, almost entirely unbiblical. In America, we think work is a curse. We think it's something to be avoided, or we do just enough, just barely enough, to pay for what I want to do. And that we get done doing it and get out of doing it as fast as we can, as soon as we can, because we can get on to something good. And that is not the Bible's view of work. The Bible's view of work is that labor, work, our vocation, is a calling from God, and it is a stewardship. It is the way in which we use our time, our talents, our abilities, our skills, our God-given graces to serve our fellow man, and we receive back in that service something of value to us as well. We exchange good to people, one for another, as part of our labor exchange. That is a grace given to us by God. Okay, That is the biblical view of work, a stewardship. Our view of work, we just do as little as we can because we view it as a curse. Now, work in this world is not a curse, it is cursed. It is something holy and good that has fallen under the curse of Genesis chapter 3, but it itself is not a curse. It is a good thing. It is a gift from God. But it is marked by futility and vanity and vexing and emptiness and frustration and toil and labor and sweat and exhaustion and all of that stuff. But all of that is a result of the curse on work. But work itself is a good thing. Now this applies to work, but it's also broader than that. It's whatever your hand finds to do. So are you a Sunday school teacher? Teach with all your might. Put all your energies into it. Enjoy it. Spend yourself in doing that. Do you work? Do you serve? Your hobbies? Your pursuit of holiness? Your mortification of sin? Your reading of Scripture? Your memorizing? Your prayer life? Your worship? Your fellowship? Your cultivation of friendships? Whatever it is that your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. This encompasses everything. What you put your hand to, pour everything into it. And that's what the word might means. You might think that that he's just describing here our strength or our, our power, the ability, the physical strength or power. And it's, it's more than that. It's broader than that. It includes physical strength, but it's more than just that because the word encompasses our authority, our abilities, and is sometimes once even translated wealth in the Old Testament. It is that the word for might describes anything that rests in our hands. All of our abilities, mental, physical, spiritual, financial, Whatever it is, whatever station in life God has given to you, whatever gifts, talents, abilities, times, treasures, whatever it is, whatever spiritual capacities are given to you, mental capacities, physical capacities, you take all of that and you invest it in everything you do. Now Solomon is not saying that you should do everything, but he's saying that when you do do something, that you do it with all of your might. You do it with all of your ability. Let me ask you a question. Do you want your brain surgeon and your airline pilot to show up and just give a little that day that you're climbing on the plane? 
Do you want an airline pilot that looks like he's got his feet up on the console and he's relaxing and he's sipping his cup of coffee? Or do you want a guy there that's studying the manual again that he almost has memorized and he's pouring everything he can into his job? Do you want to hire somebody to just give you a little bit? Do you want to hang around with people who just, yeah, they do a lot of things, but they don't do anything well? They're not living up their potential? They're not really living life? Do you want to be taught by somebody who, who doesn't put any physical or mental or spiritual uh, capacity or energy and effort into, into teaching you something? Do you want to do that? Do you want to serve with people who just yeah, sit back and we'll just do, give a little bit? I mean, we're here, right? Might as well put forth a little bit of effort. Do you want to do that? Is that how championship teams win championships? By showing up with that attitude? Whatever you do, in all that you do, you do it with everything you have. You pour everything into it. Why? Because you're going to die. We'll get to that. That's the encouraging part at the end of verse 10. But because you are going to die, you do everything you can with all of your might, all of your strength, all of your ability. You pour yourself into it. If, if God has called you to it and He's given you the opportunity to do it, if you're going to do it, do it right, do it well, and do it with everything. I, I say this to my kids. This is one of the lessons. Do it right, do it once. If you're going to do it, do it well and do it with all of your ability. Put yourself into it. Why? Because when you die, you're not going to be able to put yourself into anything. That's the point. There's no activity, no planning, no knowledge, no wisdom in Sheol where you're going. So while you're doing doing it, do it with all your might. Now, let me give you a caveat, lest you think that I'm throwing out on you some sort of a burden that you ought not to bear because you could take this wrongly. Here's the caveat. I understand that there are folks amongst us who have physical, physical limitations, uh, mental limitations, and other things. And, and look, our ability to live in this manner deteriorates the older that we get, does it not? I, I don't work as hard today as I used to when I was 30 or 25. I don't work, it's not, not that I don't want to, it's that I can't. I can't do certain things. And 20 years from now, I'm not going to work as hard then as I do today. I'm going to look back on today as being the heyday of my life. And, and I don't look, today I look back on 20 years ago as being the heyday of my life. Things were great back then. And so there are physical limitations that each of us had. So I don't want you to think that you're sitting here and you've had five back surgeries and you leave here and you think, you know, I need to get that ditch dug for the new power line. So I think I'll go out with a pickaxe and a shovel and dig that ditch because Jim said do it with all my might, whatever my hand finds to do. Or I saw that bundle of shingles there, so I thought, well, I'll put it up. I'm not going to wait for the roofers to show up and do that. That's not what I'm suggesting. Don't, don't kill yourself. Okay? But when you grab something... Don't just pick it up if you don't tend to do something with it. Don't, don't volunteer to do something and then just say, eh, I'm not going to do that. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with everything that God has given to you. Put your whole self into that. If it's studying, if it's worship, if it's prayer, if it's serving, if it's teaching, if it's your job, if it's your labor, if it's your hobby, listen, relax with all your might. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Recreate with all your might. Whatever your hand finds to do. Do it like you're going to die tomorrow. Because guess what? You might die tomorrow. That's the whole point of the rest of the passage. Now Paul says this, by the way, in 1 Corinthians, he says something similar to this. And he applies it to ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 26. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. This is a man who poured everything he could, everything he had into his ministry. And he was incredibly fruitful in it. And God blessed it. But Paul was a man who labored. And Paul was not somebody who decided, oh, I'm going to go do this, and then I'm not going to really do it. Paul was a man who, this is God has given it to him. 
He did it, and he did it with all that he had. Romans 12, verse 11. We are to be not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And the reason, the end of verse time, verse 10. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Now, Sheol is just a reference to the place of the dead. When the Old Testament uses the term Sheol, it's not talking about specifically heaven or specifically hell. It's not distinguishing between those two. It's not talking about rewards or punishment. It's just, generically speaking, the place of the dead. And as you read through the Old Testament, you will see that the, the Old Testament revelation concerning the afterlife is far less clear than the New Testament revelation concerning the afterlife. It's like the doctrine of the Trinity. You can look in the Old Testament, you can see the doctrine of the Trinity there, but when the Son of God was incarnate in our midst, all of a sudden the triune nature of the eternal God became crystal clear for us. That is the way it is with this doctrine of the afterlife. So Solomon is just saying you're going to die. You're going to the place of the dead. He's not talking about necessarily heaven or hell because in the Old Testament, the righteous went to Sheol, the wicked went to Sheol. Both of them went to the place of the dead. And so there's not, it's just, it's kind of, it's kind of fuzzy in the Old Testament. Very clear in the New Testament. So since you are going to Sheol, Solomon's perspective is that in terms of this life and what you are able to do here, once you go there, there's no activity or planning or wisdom or knowledge. Right? You, once you go there, your activity here stops. That's what he's saying. Once you go there, all the planning that you have for this life, it's over. The wisdom and knowledge that you have in Sheol means nothing in this world. And so all Solomon is saying is that from the vantage point of this world, once you go to the next, you cease to exist. You cease to have any impact here. So while you are here, live with all your might. That's the point. Because once you go there to the place of the dead, you can't live here anymore. So while you're here, be here, live here, serve here, passionately so. Why? Because you're going to die. And once you die, you can't be here anymore. That seems so pedantic and simple, doesn't it? But man, it should just, it should invigorate us and fire us up to, to live life in a way that honors God to his glory and to put everything we can into everything we do and to do it with excellence and do it for the glory of God. Now, having gone through all three of these categories, wine, wife, and work, let me make two observations about everything that we have listed here. The first one is this. All of these things can be abused if used wrongly. You notice that? Every last one of these. These are all blessings that God has given to us, and every last one of them can be abused. Somebody abuses the food that they are given, they can become a glutton. If somebody abuses wine, they become a drunkard. Uh, you can party and be festive all day long and neglect all of your other duties and just pursue pleasure. Yeah, you can abuse that. You can wear too much cologne, as I already mentioned. You can abuse that. You can, you can abuse human sexuality through fornication or adultery. That good, good gift can be abused and misused. You can abuse work if you make work all that you do and everything that you do, and it's all about work and nothing else, and you don't see it for what it is in the hands of God. So all of these things, if misused, can be abused. And Solomon is not advocating any one of these extremes. He's not suggesting that we drink ourselves sick or that we eat ourselves sick or that we party ourselves sick. He's not suggesting any of that. He's not asking us to go to extremes in any of these things, but really to have a very moderated and balanced view of enjoying life and the gifts that God has given to us. The second thing about all of these things is that all of these things point us to a future reality. Every last one of these things points us to a fulfillment that for us is yet future. Think about it. The bread that we eat reminds us of the fact that we have been invited to a banquet of unimaginable proportions. And we get that. We're going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and enjoy a feast 
of epic proportions than Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Noah and David and all of the righteous from all of the ages. That gets to be, that gets to be our feast. And when we eat bread and we enjoy that pleasure, it is a glimpse of what is to come. When we drink wine, the fruit of the vine, whether it's grape juice or wine or every beverage should remind us that the Lord has promised us that he will not drink from the fruit of the vine until he comes that day in his kingdom. And then we will sit down with him and we will enjoy those blessings. When we are dressed up and we're going someplace special for a special occasion and we look nice and we smell nice, it ought to remind us that we are going to a festival, a celebration of redemption that will never end in that kingdom. We will be dressed in the spotless robes of the righteousness of Christ, dressed for that massive celebration, and we will enjoy it. And the fellowship and companionship and the friendship that we enjoy with others and with our spouse and all of the intimacy that we enjoy with each other, that should remind us of that time when we will be with the Lord, we will see Him face to face, and we will enjoy that intimacy and that fellowship and that companionship without the presence of sin, completely unhindered in that kingdom. And won't we enjoy that? And the work that we do now should remind us that someday we are going to work in an eternal state of rest. I know that sounds contradictory, but it's not. Because our work for the Lord in the kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, will not be vexed by futility and emptiness and, and vanity. And instead, the work that we do there will be an unmitigated joy. And it will not exhaust us. It will be an unmitigated joy. All of these things point us to a future and ultimate fulfillment. So Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary on Ecclesiastes writes this, Our earthly pleasures are telling us that we were made for another world. Every honest day's work brings us one day closer to our eternal rest. Every good meal is a reminder that we have been invited to the last and best of all banquets. Every God-centered party anticipates the heavenly celebration that will never end. When we receive these pleasures in heaven, we will realize that we first experienced them here on earth. Every earthly joy is the foretaste of a better life to come in the paradise where God has promised us pleasures forevermore. End quote. So what do we do? We live life enjoyed with all our might for the glory of God. That is what he's called us to do in this vain and futile world. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for blessing us with pleasures and benefits and blessings to enjoy. You are so good to us, kind beyond measure. We pray that you would help us to see every simple delight and every simple joy, not only as a gift from you, but a foretaste of the kingdom and the blessings which are to come. Thank you that we can enjoy these things in this world while we look forward to the next. And we pray that you would fix our hearts heavenward so that we may honor you and glorify you and see your hand in all that we do, all that we enjoy, and every blessing we have received. May you be praised this day and forevermore, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.